Kevin, welcome you to Grace. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. Um, your, your clocks worked, right? Your iPhones worked. They just switched at 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. and you sprang forward. So that's, that, that's great. Um, if you're new to Grace, I want to invite you to take the card in the seat pocket in front of you and fill it out and let us know that you've been here. That would really serve us. We would love to know how we can be of service to you. If there's anything we can pray for you about, uh, we take those cards in the pocket in front of you and use those as a way that we can pray for you. So we gather together as a staff uh, every morning and we pray for the needs of the congregation and we'd love it if you'd tell us what we can uh, and how we can pray for you. I want to ask our good friend Tom Latier to come forward. Uh, Tom has been a great friend of Grace Community Church and, uh, and really a mentor in some ways uh, as we have uh, really seen a lot of growth and development on our healing prayer team. Uh, Tom is from Bartlesville. Uh, grew up here, right? Yes. yes. And uh, so we're really glad you're here. So I, I wanted to ask you um, this morning about, about the, the importance of telling your story. Yeah. So when, when somebody uh, encounters prayer and God breaks through, why is it so important that they tell the story? Um, well, I, was, I, I was also a pastor for 35 years as well. And for a lot of that, uh, I went to church even as the pastor not expecting God to do much of anything. You know, that's the sad truth of it. Until I got involved in healing ministry, and uh, it was really the first time that I got involved in ministry that required God to show up for it to work. Yes. But to, and to tell the stories, we, we do that for, uh, for several reasons. Uh, one is it gives glory to God. God, the, the power of God is being proclaimed that, that he is among us. And that he is at work. You know, we share testimonies about our conversion. Some, sometimes we do that. We've, we've probably all done that at some point or another. Showing that God is a God who changes a life. But he's also a God that heals and restores all things. Um, it raises a testimony. A testimony of healing or restoration of any kind raises a faith level in a church. And the, the higher the faith level, the greater the expectation of God to move, the more we see God do. So as I, was, as I was thinking about, about this this morning, I thought about yeah. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And he says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed yes. from one level of glory to another. And it seems like all of us should be aware that we're living in a story. And, and we should be updating our story. And particularly yeah. Yeah. as we face huge crises there ought to be an update to that story that we tell. And I, I love what you're saying, that, it, you know, that, that's, that update to the story really generates faith in other people. Yeah, that's right. And, and not only that, as we share the testimony, it creates the opportunity for that testimony, that miracle to happen again. Yeah. It, it changes an environment. I, sharing a testimony is the same thing as sharing the Word of God. I, when God moves among us, to tell everybody else what he's done is to share the word of God. Sharing the word of God shapes an environment for a church or even for an individual so that there's more of the activity of God that's drawn to that place where he is being glorified, where his power is being revealed, and lives are being transformed. It's, and it, it's amazing what happens. If you want to see more people healed, you share healing testimonies. If you want to see marriages restored, you share testimonies of marriages being restored. And, and just, it increases. So I've, I've often had people say to me, oh, I'm, I'm a little nervous about sharing my story. Yeah. Because, 
I mean, it wasn't like yeah. a huge breakthrough, but but it was still important to me. Right. So so how do yeah. we get comfortable with sharing even the small breakthroughs? I I think it's just you. Faith is always a risk. It it and it um and it's the willingness to take a risk and it, it, even sharing the small victories is giving glory to God. Mm -hmm. And and not sharing them. Well, we're not, then we're not telling people what God is doing. So, some, somebody shared their small breakthrough with yeah. me. Uh, this is like within the past month. And I just, I said, that's not a small breakthrough. <laughs> that, that, is, that is huge. I knew it was huge for that person. Sure. But it was also huge in the way that it, in the way that it touched me because I knew their story. Well, uh, you think about it, there's really no small breakthrough. There's no small change. God, God takes us through a process, and the process is lifelong. And as we, uh, even as we yield slowly, one step at a time, God is able to move in us powerfully. Yeah. So it, it's all really wonderful. Yep. It's all glorious, and uh, we want God to receive the credit. And what, I'm, what I'm hoping for us corporately is yeah. that we become a place that freely enters into that, into that telling of the story. Oh, um, I th it's important. It's, uh, I think the opposite of, of faith is not necessarily unbelief. Mm -hmm. A lot of times the opposite of faith is fear. And so we, we get a little bit fearful. Yeah. Yep. And uh, it's God who wants us to have courage. Yeah. And to yeah. be determined and to persevere. Yeah. I mean, you, you have a story. A lot of you have, have, you'll have a story that God has touched you that if you share it, you, you do not know who will be encouraged by that. You will, you will encourage people around you when you begin to talk about what God is doing in your life. It just it, it makes a tremendous difference. Yep, yep. And then you all start coming to church expecting God to move. <laughs> That's a great church to be part of. Yeah. We're going to talk about that this morning. Yeah, good. All right, thanks, man. Thank you. <clears throat> I invite you to turn to, uh, to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. This is a, this is a fantastic story. And, uh, and this morning, uh, look at there, there's my family up there. Uh, whenever that happens, I realize I've got to get out of here. I've got to re-up on that little, that little place. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for your patience. I always feel like, you know, that old Saturday Night Live thing, uh, talk amongst yourselves for a little while. <laughs> um, there we go. Okay. Okay. Not that I didn't want you to see my grandkids. I'm always pretty proud of my grandkids. Um, this morning we're going to talk about choosing to receive uh, Jesus' love. And um, I, I love this story because basically what John does is he gives us a very good lesson from a bad example. I'm going to start out with a premise. And the premise is this. People who've experienced pain in the past often find it hard to receive love in the present. I want you to focus on that for a second because this is something that is very demonstrably true, but we often don't think about it. If you've encountered pain in the past, it's often very hard to receive love in the present. It's like the past pain fogs up our love receptors, and our love receptors aren't operating the way that they should. And so love is given, but we're, we, we block ourselves and we don't receive uh, that love. 
I want you to think for a second about how this works in marriage. Imagine a young man who finishes school, goes to college, graduates, gets married. You see him on his wedding day. Looks like a pretty normal guy. Um, but there's lots of pain in his life. And as his marriage begins to progress, some of that past pain hinders him from receiving love from his spouse. When he was growing up, his parents may have been very demanding, very controlling, very inattentive perhaps to his needs. And so he grows up with this sense that if anybody praises him, it's a demand to perform. So he gets into his marriage and his wife says nice things about him and he tenses up and he feels like, I got to discount that because that, that's controlling me. That's, that means I've got to perform for her. That kind of thing happens all the time, all the time. Or imagine how this works in a, in a work relationship. Imagine a corporate setting where there are six people on a project team and those six people on the team are doing pretty well at least five of them are, but there's a sixth that whenever you say anything about his performance that's good, he discounts it. He downplays it. He makes it sound like no big deal. And what happens on the team is that praise is interpreted by him like, well, okay, that really wasn't good enough, but I, and I need to do it better. It's like the past pain in his life has prevented him from encountering present love. This is also very true in our relationship with God. If you have encountered any pain in your past, and we all have, it's very easy for the pain of our past to put a, a, a wall up between us and God. And so we interpret that pain in our past as being something that blocks us from receiving the love of God. Happens all the time with people. That's the core story in John 15, 1 through 17. We get to see a man who has been paralyzed for nearly four decades, devastating pain. And there are hints in the story that he's had pain before he got paralyzed. And he's at a place where He's in this tremendous pain, and Jesus breaks through in an amazing way, and yet he can't receive that love. And we're going to learn some good, good lessons from a bad example. Now, I'll, I will tell you that this story ends awkwardly. It does not end cleanly. It's not a, and they lived happily ever after kind of a story. Not at all. And the reason why I think John makes it in awkwardly is so that we will confront ourselves and ask ourselves the question, are we the kind of person who allows past pain to hinder present love? Uh, I have to tell you, this is really a relevant issue. As I was preparing the message, I, I had two people call me in the same week, two people call me, and their issue was this very issue. It is a big deal. So let's start with a story. We begin with Jesus pursuing love, and as chapter 5 opens, it opens with this story of, of the lavish love of Jesus. Verse 1, after, the, after, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic it's called Bethesda, 
which has five roofed colonnades. In these laid a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. I need to give you some background on this. The Jews were required to go to Jerusalem uh, for the three feasts that took place in the fall, which were the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. We don't know exactly which feast this was, but it was probably the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, the people in Jerusalem were, were well, all the pe people from all around were coming to the hillsides around Jerusalem, and they would set up tents, and they would remember when Israel was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been to family camp maybe someplace, like a Pine Cove or a Branson family camp. But if you know the way family camps are, there's a culture in a family camp. And the kids are running around and the families get to see each other. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was like. It was a wonderful reunion of family friends who were coming from all around. I think Jesus probably came to this feast alone. Remember, this is early in his ministry. I think he probably came to this event solo, and I want you to notice what he does when he arrives. He leaves the celebration on the hillside. He exits the city of Jerusalem, the city gates of Jerusalem, and he goes to what really amounts to a pagan healing shrine. Why would he do that? Why go to a pagan healing shrine? Because he wants to minister to people who are in pain. As he goes to this healing shrine, we see five marks of his love. Now, here's the healing shrine. I'm going to show you multiple pictures of this, but this is a model of the healing shrine, and you'll see the pool of Bethesda up there on the screens. He's going to a pagan healing shrine because he wants to show tremendous love. And the first mark that we see is that Jesus moves toward people in grace. Notice the people who were who were here, people who are sick, blind, lame, and withered. Now, most Bible versions don't have the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4. The New American Standard does, but let me read what the New American Standard says. These sick people were waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, a lot of Jews believed in this superstition. They believed it. Uh, and John's point here is that it was a myth. So, so here, here's, the, here's a little bit of the, of the background. The Pool of Bethesda formally was a healing shrine to the god Escalapius. If you wanted to get healed in the, in the ancient world, you went to an Escalapian, and you sought healing at the Escalapian. Well, the Pool of Bethesda used to be that pagan healing shrine. When it was taken over by, by the Jews, a new myth began to emerge. And the myth was, whenever there is a stirring of the waters, and here's kind of a picture of what it might have been like, whenever there's a stirring of the waters, Jump into the pool at that point because the angel of the Lord is there and he will heal you. But what was really going on 
is that there was an underground spring and the water would bubble up in that under, underground spring. And so this myth began to develop. Oh, I can jump in there and I can be healed. So let's think about this. Jesus could be back at the camp. He could be back enjoying time with his friends, enjoying the wonderful songs that were being sung. Instead, he leaves the, the, the city walls of Jerusalem and he goes to this healing spot, really a formerly pagan healing spot, a bogus Jewish healing spot, because he wants to come to people in, in grace. And I will tell you that is exactly the way Jesus comes to you. He moves toward you in, in grace. Even in your brokenness, even in your pain, Jesus moves toward you. There was nothing in me that made God say, you know, Rod is such a great guy. I'm going to look down on the little shreds of Rod's goodness, and I'm going to reward those shreds of his goodness with salvation and blessing. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. God looked down on me, and he saw my rebellion. He saw my brokenness. He saw my sinfulness. He saw the mistakes that I made. And God did not see goodness in me. God saw the goodness in him. And because of the goodness in him, he comes down to me in grace and he shows me love. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in going to this healing spot, this pagan, bogus Jewish healing spot. And here's the second mark of Jesus' love. Jesus reaches out and he makes the first move. He makes the initial move. I mean, look at the model of the pool on the screen. This is a, a model that's in Jerusalem. You get the impression it was, it was huge, and you would be right. When this was discovered in the late 1800s, they realized this is a very big spot. But the ex excavations that took place in 1956 uh, made them realize that it was about the size of a football field. So going back to the model, imagine a football field 100 yards long, Bisecting the football field, there is a, another series of porticos. So it's like you've got two pools, one higher, one lower, bisected by these porticos. And all day long, people would take their sick and they would drop them off at the healing spot and say, here you are for the day. The water moves. Jump in. I'll see you at five pretty sad place. And so the people who are there are broken. And if you were there, you would see somber, depressed, discouraged people at this, at this healing spot. Now, the way this story functions in the Gospel of John, this is like a microcosm of the world. People in pain, people broken, people with no hope. And Jesus enters that place through his incarnation and he makes the first move. Now, I say that because of what happens in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Wait a second. How did he know that? How did he know he'd already been there a long time? Oh, well, you could say maybe because he's God. Maybe you could say that. But I think Jesus is tapping into, in his humanity, he's, he's curious. He's asking the pool manager, who's the most broken person here? Who's the person in the most pain? Who's the person who's, 
who's got the biggest need. And every person said, that guy there, that guy on that stinking mat, that guy who's paralyzed, he's the guy who's in the most pain. So Jesus makes his way to that man. And that's how Jesus loves you as well. Jesus searches us out. We're part of a broken humanity. So he searches us out. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Paul had said, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were really trying hard, God rewarded our try-hard faith with his love. Doesn't say that. While we were mired in our brokenness and pain, that's when God loved us. John, 1 John 4, 9. We love because he first loved us. He took prior initiative, and that's what Jesus does at this pool of Bethesda. Then we see another mark. Jesus knows our situation deeply. Notice that he says there was a guy who was there, this guy was there for 38 years. That number is important because anybody who read this in the first century would immediately connect the number 38 with the years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. Remember, the Jews left Egypt, and they had two really good years where they built the tabernacle. Then Moses sent the 12 spies into Israel, and they wandered around Israel, and they came back, and they gave the report, and 10 of the spies said, bad idea, can't go in there, really big cities with high walls, there's giants in the land. Two people said, no, no, we can totally take this place. And because they decided not to go in, they wandered for 38 years. Everybody reading this in the first century would have, would have thought, 38 years, okay. Here's what Deuteronomy 2.14 says. This is Moses speaking. The time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Look, he was really there. He was really paralyzed for 38 years, no doubt about that. But, John seems to be saying this guy was in a wilderness of hurt and pain. He was in a wilderness of discouragement and depression. And Jesus knows that wilderness intimately. He knows it intimately. Same way that God loves us. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. I want you to notice in this psalm how many times the the, the, the knowing word is, is used. You've searched me. You know when I sit down and rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. You're acquainted with all my waves. Even before there's a word on the tongue, Lord, you, you, you know it all. You know, the, the, the cool thing about God is that he is intimately acquainted with our wilderness, with our brokenness, and with our pain. Jesus loves that man that same way. And here's a fourth mark. Jesus confronts our flimsy solutions. Now, this man is going to go back to the superstition. He says, uh, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while another is going, another uh, while I'm going down, another steps down in front of me. This man has adopted a human solution that we know is never going to work. 
you know, his, his, his solution was, you know, I've, I've been 38 years paralyzed. There's this healing spot outside of town. I don't know if it works or not. Superstition says that it does. It can't hurt. So I'm going and I'm going to make this, I'm going to make this work. Jesus is going to confront his flimsy human solution. So I'm going to ask you, do you have any flimsy human solutions that you use? Any flimsy human solutions? I hope you say, yeah, I've got my little portfolio of flimsy human solutions. One person feels anxiety, takes illegal drugs, realize that exacerbates the anxiety all the more. Another person feels that she's failed at love, so she does things that make her feel even more like a failure at love. All of us have our flimsy human solutions. And amazingly, Jesus loves this man even in the context of his flimsy human solutions. There's a final way that this Jesus loves this man. He asks the man to get in touch with what he really wants. He says, do you want to be healed? Does that seem like a strange question to you? Like, obviously, I'm in a healing spot. I get plunked down here apparently all the time. Obviously, I want to be healed. It seems on the one hand like kind of a, kind of a dumb question. It's a brilliant question. Jesus gives this brilliant question because people who have been in pain for a long time often embrace their disability both as an identity and as a destiny. Think about what happens if this guy gets well. He's got to go out and get a job. If this guy gets well, he's got to move out of uh, maybe the place where he's living with his relatives and get his own house. He's a grown man. Maybe he's got to get his own place. Maybe he's got to build a different relationship with his family. Maybe he's got to take responsibility for his life that he has not had to take for 38 years. So this is a great question Jesus asks. Do you really, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? Because it will completely change your life. I think Jesus would ask us the same sort of question. Do you really want to be transformed? Do you really want a supernatural breakthrough to your prayer? Do you really want that? Because if that comes, it may mean that you take new responsibility for your life. And honestly, some people, some people don't want to be transformed because they're, they're in a rut that's easy, and so they don't want that transformation. So now the story, uh, the rest of the story is, is really pretty amazing. Jesus says, get up, take your bed, and walk. Get up, take your bed, and walk. Three commands. Get up, take your bed, and walk. And instantly, neurons in his brain that have not fired in 40 years begin to fire. Neurons up and down his spine that have not, have not been working for 40 years begin to work. Muscles that have been atrophied instantly are made whole. 
tendons that needed to be strengthened are now made whole. His ankles are strong. His feet are strong. This guy now has the miracle of instant healing from paralysis. Total game changer for this guy. It radically changes his life. And Jesus is not done. He says, get up, take your mat, and walk. Think about this. In a single command, this guy now has a story. I say he has a story because with the mat, the man now has a story, at least in theory. Let me tell you about these mats. These mats um, were not cushiony yoga mats that make it easy to do exercise. These were, like the screen suggests, woven mats. And because of the way sanitation worked in the ancient world, these mats smelled, sorry to be so blunt, of feces, urine, infection, and disease. These mats were the kind of things you could smell a mile away. If there was a mat in this auditorium here, everybody would be able to smell this stinking, gross mat. Why didn't Jesus say, throw that darn thing away? Because by picking up the mat and walking, this guy now is a story. People who see the mat are going to say, hey, aren't you the paralyzed guy? Yeah, I can smell by the mat that you were the paralyzed guy. He's got a story now. Jesus just gave that man a story. He is the recipient of life-changing love. The question is, will he receive it? Will he receive it? Sadly, this man resists love. And as I read these verses, I want, I want you to, I want to ask you the question, does this man seem happy? And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, hey, the man who healed me, that guy said to me, take up your bed and walk. Does that seem strange to you? The story, just, it's like, oh, the story doesn't, doesn't quite fit if you know the rest of the Gospel of John well. A lot of people who get healed in the Bible are hugely fired up. Like, think about the guy in Acts chapter 3. Remember the guy in Acts chapter 3, to quote the song, was walking and leaping and praising God? I could sing it for you if you forgot the song. Guy was walking. Guy's really fired up. People so far in the Gospel of John have been healed are likewise very fired up. The nobleman in John chapter 4, very fired up guy. The woman at the well, she's pretty fired up. She's been healed of shame, and she goes back and she tells her story, and people stream out to see Jesus. Very fired up. The guy in John chapter 9, the man who's born blind, he too is extremely fired up. But this man, it's like he's flat, he's dreary, he's dull. Here's why. Here's why. Um, First, he, he expresses no appreciation. Where do you hear any expression of thanks? This guy doesn't even pause to ask Jesus' name. Like he at least could have said, wow, I'm healed. And what's your name? Like, who are you? Like, you just changed my life. I, I, I need to know your name so that I can, I can write a thank you note. There, there's, there's, no, there's no curiosity about that. You know, one of the things that happens with people who resist love is that they are very incurious about the lover. 
Let's say a husband is expressing care and appreciation for his wife. Or a wife is expressing care and appreciation for her husband. And let's say the spouse is resisting that love. Often there's no curiosity about, why are you loving me like this? Why are you, why are you caring for me like this? Is it our anniversary? Is it Mother's Day? Is it Father's Day? Like, what, 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 what's going on? What's going on? One of the marks of receiving love well is that you're curious about the person who is showing that love. One of the marks of somebody who's not receiving love well is they're not being curious. Walls are up. Resist that love that's given. That's the idea. A second mark is that this person does not affiliate with Jesus under pressure. He does not tell his story under pressure. Jesus gave the man a story. Take up your mat and walk. And if you were paralyzed and you were carrying around a mat, you'd have a story to tell. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't you think that people around you would say, get rid of that thing? Well, I can't just yet. Why? The thing smells. Stinks to high heaven. Why? Because the guy who healed me told me to pick it up and, and, and carry it with me. Who is that guy? Well, found out his name. His name is Jesus. And, and that, that guy healed you? See, he could, have, he could have entered into the story. He doesn't affiliate with Jesus under pressure. There's no story. The Pharisees confront him and say, hey, pal, you're, you're working on the Sabbath. What's wrong with you? That would have been a great time for him to tell his story. Didn't do it. And then finally, he didn't respond to Jesus when Jesus pursues him again. He's up in the Temple Mount, and Jesus comes to him and says, see, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. So, you know, the thing is, if, if most of us were the guy, we probably would have said, okay, Jesus, tell me what that even means. I'm not even sure how to interpret that. Doesn't do that. Instead, he, he, go, he goes right to the Jewish authorities. Say, hey, you know that guy? You know that guy that, that I said made me take up my mat and walk? Wasn't my fault that I took it up. He, he made me do it. You know, that guy, it's, it's that guy. It's that guy right there. So now the Jews are persecuting Jesus. So there's, there's, uh, there's, there's no, no curiosity. There's no, there's no passion with this guy. It's like he has gone from unthankful recipient of healing to hateful informer against the healer. And that's why people are now beginning to persecute Jesus. So if that's, if that's the point, let's, let's pull back the, the lens on the story and see, see the big picture. What's, what's the main point of this story? Here's the main idea. The Son of God is constantly working in the wilderness of fallen humanity, reaching out toward a broken, broken people, doing love, engaging in supernatural ministry. And we have to ask the question, do I have the eyes to recognize him? What I find amazing about this is the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the exodus 
It celebrated the wilderness wanderings for 38 years. It celebrated all that. It celebrated the fact that God loves the wanderer. God loves the broken person. It celebrated all that. The Feast of Tabernacles did. So Jesus is going into a, a place of pain, a wilderness of pain, and he's healing a guy. And the guy resists that love. And because the story ends awkwardly, we have to ask, are we the kind of people who are willing recipients of God's love or do we resist love? So let's apply this. Three, three good lessons from a bad example. Lesson number one is, I want you to assess your current love meter for Jesus. Assess your current love meter for Jesus. What's your love like toward him and what's your receptivity like for his love toward you? All of us have meters in our cars. We have meters that measure RPMs. We have me meters that measure how hot our engines are. We have meters that measure how much gas we have in our tank. And it's a good thing for us to assess the meter. I, I was reading yesterday that when the Model T Ford was built, there was no gas gauge. If you wanted to find out how much gas you had in the car, you had to lift up the seat and pull out the dipstick and find out how much gas you had. I don't want that kind of meter in my car. I want the meter that I can, I can look at. You've got a meter in your life, and that meter is a love meter. And you probably intuitively know how well you receive love from the Father and how well you love the Son, the resurrected Jesus Christ. You probably, probably know what, what that's like. I know Jesus wants us to understand what our, our love meter is because in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, he says, look, guys, Church of Ephesus, I, I have this issue with you, and that is you've lost your first love. Your love meter has gone way down, way low, and I want you to get it back again. He asks them to check their love meter. And so I think it's a helpful thing for us, for you and I, to periodically check our love meters. And what happens when you look at your meter? What do you do first? You just notice it. You just notice it. Huh, I noticed that I got a quarter tank left. You just notice it. When you're, when you're driving along and you notice you got a quarter tank of gas, just noticing it makes you think, I'm going to have to make a decision in the future, but right now I'm just noticing where I currently am. So I'm going to ask you right now, this very moment, to notice where you currently are. Scale of 1 to 10. How well do you receive the love of the Father? If you're at a 10, way to go. That's awesome. I would imagine most of us are not there. If you're down to 1, 2, 3, 0, I just want you to notice where you are on that gauge. And the thing to do after noticing is not to do yet. Because the thing to do after noticing is, is to go to the Holy Spirit and say, Spirit, I'm at a two. I'm at a one. I think I'm at a point five. Holy Spirit, I can't ramp up love for God on my own. I need, I need you, for you to do it. I need you to do it. And one of the great prayers I think to pray is this. It's the prayer that says, Father, 
will you please help me love Jesus the way you love Jesus? Father, will you please help me love Jesus the way that you love Jesus? That's a prayer the Father loves to answer. So that's the first application. Assess your current love meter for Jesus. Boy, I hope you came up with a number just then. Because noticing the number is the key to how you pray to the Father to grow in love. Here's the second application. Be open to a supernatural breakthrough. I don't think this man was open to supernatural breakthrough. This man, all he could think about was his flimsy human solution and how that flimsy human solution was not, was not working. Followers of Jesus who are growing are open to supernatural breakthrough. I want to remind you of a, of a big theological word. Josh gave a word last week that was kind of a big theological word, adoptionism, right? You probably all have been studying that this week. I'm going to give you a big theological word this week. You've heard it before, but it's a word called cessationism. Cessationism is the idea that some of the spiritual gifts ceased after the New Testament was completed. And the practical outcome is that you tend to downplay God's supernatural interventions, not expecting His dramatic solutions. So you go through your Christian life thinking, I know God's powerful, but God doesn't do big stuff anymore. He does small stuff. I got a big issue. God probably is not going to intervene in this big issue. Probably not going to pray with expectation that He will intervene. So you start living a flat and dull Christian life, not anticipating that the God of the universe will significantly break through into your situation. Here's what Jesus proved at the pool. Jesus proved he is more interested in pouring out supernatural solutions than we are in receiving them. What he proved at the pool what G is that he's, he, Jesus is more interested in proving out supernatural solutions, pouring out supernatural solutions than we are in receiving them. So if you want to receive the love of Jesus, I would encourage you to dream a little about what he might do supernaturally. Maybe you need healing in a relationship. Maybe you need physical healing. Maybe you need transformation on your job. Maybe you need a transformation in your marriage and your family. Maybe you need a, a breakthrough because of anxiety and depression. Dream a little about what could be and then trust the Son for a supernatural breakthrough. If you dream a little, ask, ask Jesus, Lord, how do you want me to pray about this area that I need a breakthrough in? How do you want me to pray about it? What are you birthing in my heart as I, as I pray about this thing? But by all means, stop believing in this because what this does is it leads you to a flat and dull and listless spiritual life. And here's the third application. Be the kind of person who receives God's love and then tells your story. Go back to the mat. Go back to that stinking, filthy, gross mat. The guy is carrying this mat around. Imagine the guy goes into Chick-fil-A. What, what, what's everybody Chick-fil-A going to go, going to say? Get that thing out of here. There's a dumpster behind the restaurant. Why are you even carrying that, Matt? Guy who healed me told me I, 
I should. What do you mean, guy who healed you? What happened to you? I was paralyzed for 38 years. Paralyzed, could not walk. I had to be carted around on a stretcher for 38 years. I was seeking a false solution at the Pool of Bethesda. You know, that place is totally bogus. I was seeking a false solution there. And Jesus came in, and at three commands, he healed me. And I am I'm a walking miracle. And I know you hate the mat, but the mat is a reminder that my life has been transformed. I know it smells, but I'm walking in the joy of this miracle. Can I tell you about the guy who healed me? See, see that's, that's the idea. Jesus, Jesus gives all of us a mat, as it were. So I'm going to ask the question, what is your mat? Because your, your mat is the story that precipitated your transformation. He uses financial failure. He uses moral failure. He uses restoration of a hopeless relationship. He uses, he uses healing after, after years of frustration. He uses sadness. He uses pain. And that part of your story is that part of your story you don't really want to share because because it's uncomfortable and it's awkward. But your mat is that painful place that you get to share after God's transforming grace breaks through. And now your story is all the more poignant because your story is a story of transformation from pain. So let me go back to the big idea. The main idea is that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, is constantly working in the wilderness of fallen humanity. He's reaching out toward broken people in love. He's doing supernatural ministry. And the question that we have to ask is, do I have the eyes to recognize his love and to receive that love? So go back to the love meter for a second. As we pray, I want to ask you um, to name that number in prayer and say, Jesus, let's do this right now. Let's pray. I just want you to, to, <clears throat> to name the number and say, say, Father, will you please empower me to love Jesus the way you love Jesus? Or you could pray it another way. Holy Spirit, will you please help me love the Father the way you love the Father? Father, I want to thank you for this demonstration of love. You entered into a broken man's world. You transformed his life. Lord, I pray that we would do it differently. We would be people who would receive your love and receive your love and walk in joyful transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our prayer team is going to be up here. They'd love to pray with you over anything that's going on in your life. Hope you have a great Sunday afternoon.